Thanks for listening to this podcast produced by Diddy TV. Visit DiddyTV.com for more exclusive on-demand content or download the official Diddy TV app from your app store today. Welcome to Insights, everyone. Our guest this hour is acclaimed singer-songwriter and Old 97's band leader, Rhett Miller, who's here to discuss his latest solo album, The Misfits. This is the Texas-bred singer-songwriter's ninth studio album, and it's another clear indication of his strong ability to craft earworms that go deeper than your average pop song. Miller collaborated on the album with Sam Cohen, known as a producer for works by Kevin Morby, Danger Mouse, and many more. Sam and Rhett got together daily to write songs, creating a routine that led to the sublime and even psychedelic new record that we recommend to all. So let's learn all about it and hear about Rhett's upbringing in today's talk with host Amy Wright, right here on Insights. Well, I'm glad you could join us today. This is great. Totally. Um, We're going to go back a little ways and talk a little bit about how you got started in music, and then we'll go on to The Misfit, which is the new album which is very exciting. Yeah. Yeah. I had a great opportunity to listen to the whole thing. It was just really great. I enjoyed it. Um, I'm sure everyone's going to love it as much as I did. So, um, so yeah. So where are you now? Are you um, living in um, New York? Is that where you live? I live in the Hudson Valley, just North of Manhattan, like a 90 minute drive from Soho. How did you end up in New York? Because I know you're a Texas boy originally. Yeah, I'm a seventh generation Texan. And the fact that I have two kids that are second generation New Yorkers is eternally frustrating to me. <laughs> um, but I, I I was living with my wife. We had just gotten married. We were living in Los Angeles. She grew up in Ohio. I grew up in Texas. She was mostly in the city working and living in Manhattan. And I was bouncing back and forth between New York and L.A. And we got married. And when she got pregnant, we looked around and... I tried to imagine raising kids in L.A. or Reseda or wherever we would have wound up being able to afford a pad. And um, it seemed like it would be nice to raise kids in a less insane environment. So her brother at the time lived in the Hudson Valley. He was working in um, metal work. He was uh, working on large scale sculptures, which this is one of the main places they do that, especially for the New York art scene. And um, we had visited him here. In fact, we came here after 9-11. We fled from our apartment building a block away from the towers and came up here. And And it was so the opposite of the chaos that we had left behind that I think that was imprinted on our memories. And then every time we came back to visit, we thought, this seems like the best place in the world to live. And it has wound up being the case. We've been here 19 years now. That's amazing. Well, as a, someone who's been living in Memphis for a while and is enduring this massive heat wave that we've been having, I was, I'm was i a little jealous that you're in, in New York because that's got to be a little bit better than here. It's great. I mean, it, it is also getting hotter today. Is uh, it's, it's, a, it, it's the kind of day where I'm going to complain about it to all my New York-based friends. But if I call my, my sister in Austin or my mom outside of Dallas and complain about it, they will get mad at me because it's a solid 15 degrees cooler than, than where they are. When I was going to ask you, so you have, the, um, you have your podcast, Will's, Will's Off, and what is it you love most about interviewing people? Because I'm going to interview you, but what is it you like in, about interviewing other people? 
it's funny. It's not something I ever thought I wanted to do. And and then three or four years ago, the edict came down um, from the overlords that everyone that was even remotely connected to the entertainment industry had to host their own podcast. And so I fought it for a while. And then um, I did. I had a, a producer named Kirsten, a friend of a friend, approached me about it and said, well, if you were to do a podcast, what would you want it to be? And I thought about the conversations that I have in backstages, green rooms around the world at, you know, festival uh, um you know the at the the mess hall at the backstages at festivals whenever i run into other creative types musicians writers i just had lunch with a couple of um writer a, a novelist and a, a director friend of mine i just had lunch with them and we had this the exact conversation the conversation always winds up being what are you working on right now you know how did you start how do you deal with the problems that you encounter be they external or internal and then you know like what 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 do you got for me? What's your best advice? And so really those are my four questions that I not to pull the curtain back too too much, but on on my wheels off conversations, it's just those four things. And it's the same conversation conversation that I would be having with a friend anywhere in the world, like with any creative friend of mine. And I love having these. I've never regretted starting and now I'm 120 podcasts in and I love it. I love it too, because I really like seeing what makes people tick. And what I find is that when it when it when it's all broken down, we're all individuals. We have families, we have hopes and dreams and desires, and we have uh, challenges like you're describing, and then we overcome in, in many cases. And so there's a lot of parallels. It doesn't matter what industry you're in or what your career or profession or profession is or your personal side is. There's a lot of similarities between everybody, um, yet your story is individual. That's what I find fascinating. Yeah, and for me, it's uh, it's constantly energizing, and because I've always had one one of my personal hangups that I've had to get over is the idea that all these other people whom I admire, they know something I don't know. They they have some secret that I've <laughs> never been allowed to be privy to. And like I just got to interview one of my favorite writers, Jennifer Egan, who has been you know she won a Pulitzer Prize, she won the book pin, like she's won all the awards. If, you know, everybody that I know is obsessed with Jennifer Egan. I'm obsessed with Jennifer. I think she's one of the greatest writers of our time. But if you sit down and talk with her, she's one of us. You know, she she worries about her work. She worries about her kids. She has to go through daily life and all the baloney, you know, waiting for the cable guy to show up. Actually, that's an outdated reference. But, you know, that <laughs> I idea of just the annoying day to day stuff that we all have to deal with, she has to deal with it as well as well as the sort of um, negative voices in her head and all those kind of things. And so for me to get to talk to somebody that I admire so much and imagine, you know, like I, like I said, knows something I don't know and realizing, oh yeah, they're just like, you know, stars. They're just like us. It's that thing. And it makes me feel better about, you know, the chances that I have of being able to do my own work or, or more to, to do great stuff, the kind of work that I admire them doing. Yeah, we all beat ourselves up and 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 sort of uh, we we're, we're introspective in many cases and um, and and thinking that we we 
we can't do what we set out to do. And when you talk to folks like that, um, it is really encouraging that they experience the same thoughts, you know, that, uh, that everyone, everyone has. So let's go back to Texas. You grew up in, was it Austin, Texas? Is that where you grew up? I was born in Austin, but mm-hmm. I was only, I was only there for, you know, months, a couple maybe, maybe when I was one and a half, we moved. And so whenever I bring it up on stage in Austin, my guitar player walks over and, and punches me. He's like, you're not from Austin, man. <laughs> but uh, I grew up in Dallas. I grew up in, in old, good old Dallas. And um, was your family musical or where did you get that bug? Uh, my paternal grandfather was the leader of a big band. Um, I don't know that he even really played anything, though. I think he just conducted the orchestra and put together the sheet music. Um, my mother is an incredible singer and never pursued her her true lifelong dream of being. I think, and she she would say this. It's funny. It sounds funny to me to say it, but her dream was to be a backup singer. And so she she could easily have been i mean she she says that she doesn't sing anywhere near as well now as she used to you know in her 20s and 30s uh but she to this day has an incredible singing voice and i grew up listening to her sing around the house and i grew up in choirs you know she she and i would go spend a lot of time in churches um and i i was i was in choirs my you know through my ill-fated college career i sang in choirs and then went straight into being in rock bands so when, how old were you when you started playing guitar? I I started around 12 and it was too hard and I quit. And then at 13, <laughs> the idea of writing songs, I couldn't get it out of my head. And so I went back to the same teacher that I had quit on. And I, and I, you know, went back head in hand with uh, full of apologies and he was cool about it. He said, instead of me trying to impose this um, system of learning on you, where we go through like, uh, learning scales and learning all this stuff. He goes, why don't you just bring in songs that you like and and I'll teach you how to play those songs. And inevitably they were like folk music. And, uh, and then for me, it was a lot of like Kingston Trio and Peter, Paul and Mary, which was not cool, but fortunately it was pretty easy. Like it was real strummy, strum acoustic guitar kind of stuff. And that was what I wanted to learn how to do. And then my earliest songs I made a high school album that you can still find out there where I sang with a British accent because I thought that's how when you're fancy, that's how <laughs> I you love did that. it. And um, yeah, so it was a lot of that. And so I mean, really, a British accent is a little bit smarter, though, isn't it? Just a little bit. That was what I thought. But it turns <laughs> out it's just wildly embarrassing, turns out. Oh, that's just that is so great. Um, did you play sports? I did. Through ninth grade, I was uh, mm-hmm. on the JV football team. I played basketball until I no longer was able to make the team in about about ninth grade. Basically, when everybody got big and strong and like had a lot of hair on their face, <laughs> that was that was sort of the turning point. And I chose music around 14 years old. That was that, I, I was no wondering when you sort of like made that decision, because especially boys, there's all sorts of things going on in high school and you know, lots of distractions and. I guess, paths you can take. And so you said you put out an album. You had a band in high school then? You actually were performing or? 
I, I did. I had a band called Scarlet's Garden with a couple of friends. I made a solo record, or my my first album was a Rhett Miller album. It was produced by Murray Hammond, who's the bass player in the old ninety sevens now. So even at sixteen years old, Murray was my mentor and producer, and we've been bandmates and and best friends ever since. So what did you do after high school? Did you go to college? Did you go just go straight and start playing? Music, what, what did you do? Uh, well, I had a full scholarship for creative writing to Sarah Lawrence College in New York, not far from where I live now. Um, and it was at the time the most expensive school in the country. So the fact that I had a full scholarship was great because, you know, I didn't grow up in a, a wealthy family. And um, but that also made it all the more galling when after one semester I dropped out and gave up the scholarship and turned my back on higher learning altogether to go back to Dallas and start a band with Murray, Sleepy Heroes. And that was it. I I worked in restaurants. I worked for a plumber as his you know assistant. I worked um, just terrible jobs, little, you know, uh, those kind of fly-by-night jobs that you can get, like Ken, the guitar player in the old 97s, and I worked for a while setting up a pet smart store where we would build all the displays before they had their grand opening. That kind of job, the kind of job where you could disappear on tour for a month and then come back and they would either let you back in, you know, to your job or the job would have disappeared. But it was always music after I dropped out of college. Well, so obviously you're very creative. And if you got a scholarship in creative writing, that must mean that you're a good writer. So when did you actually start putting your lyrics to music and writing your songs? And it seems like that's kind of a natural combination then for you. Yeah, for me, it was all part of the same thing. Uh, for a long time, I really loved writing poems, but that's it's kind of an embarrassing way to go about writing. You know, poetry tends to be looked down on, especially if you're in high school. And I realized that I could do the same, pretty much the same exact thing, but then like strum some chords and it was suddenly totally acceptable um, because now it's songwriting rather than poetry. And so I did that. I, I was writing short stories. I've, I've always had some novel in progress or some, you know, two or three novels in progress, but never finished that. I just this week put out my first or my second book of uh, my second kids book. The first one was a book of poems, kids poems. And this new one is a standalone picture book, which is one long rhyming story. And um, I love that. I, I've written essays and uh, to me, it all feels like it's part of the same thing. The songs were the easiest for me because you can sit down and a half an hour later stand up and this song exists and it wasn't there a half an hour earlier. And now it's in the world. And it's just, there was a great line I heard um, Tom Waits say once at a, a South by Southwest keynote speech when he's, he said, I love it. Whenever I finish a song, I say, now go fly away and make daddy some money. <laughs> Oh, that's that's great. That's a great line. Well, that's what's nice about songwriting or poetry is that you're boiling down an enormous concept into just a few words. And that's the challenge, isn't it? It's yeah. And that's what's so beautiful about it. And that's what's so hard about it. Right. It's like, what are the mm -hmm. what are the 18 to 36 lines that are going to capture this moment succinctly? And for me, I've found that the the best way to do it is by including a lot of details um, don't don't jump to the conclusion, you know, maybe um, build up 
build up with with some real moments and details and let the listener slash reader get to the conclusion on their own because it's a lot more fulfilling that way and feels a lot less pedantic. For sure. And um, so you mentioned the children's book. And um, I was going to get to that later, but let's just talk about it for a second now. What is it you love about writing children's books? Because it's your second one. And there must be something, some kind of joy you get out of that. Um, the way that I've done it the, over the course of my two, just two books, and I, I imagine I'll do more. My, my kids were little when I really started doing it. And it was mainly a way of tricking them into spending time with me and engaging in some version of my work because I'd be on tour and, you know, no little kid wants to sit on FaceTime um, even, you know, much less the phone with their dad. But um, I would say, okay, look, I've, I wrote a poem today in Memphis, for instance, and, and um, I'd like to read it to you and you can tell me how it could be better. Let's collaborate on this. And so, I'd read them the poem and they would laugh about it. And then they would tell me how bad it was. And then they would give me oh. ideas about how it could be better. And then, you know, then we were engaging in it and it was really sweet because then it, it compels me to try and write something that's going to make them want to engage. That's going to make them laugh. That's going to impress them. I mean, as, as goofy as it is, you know, my job is, has been over the years about impressing, you know, imp impressing is such a dumb word for it, but like, like, you know, um, trying to connect with, in a real way, the audience. And maybe the audience was my 14-year-old girlfriend, or maybe now it's my teenage kids. But I, I want to do something that lands with them. That makes total sense. Um, as a kid, they probably don't even understand what you do for a living, but yeah. they do understand a kid book, right? <laughs> so... Yeah, they understood. They've always understood it enough to be sort of annoyed by it. Like mm -hmm. this is coming between me and you. Like if I was just sitting in the living room with my guitar strumming, they would walk up and they would put their hands flat across the strings and look at me and say, shh, you know, like, come don't on, do Dad. that, daddy. Yeah. <laughs> Stop. And then eventually they would come to shows. And there was a time when their reaction to my job was, to be sort of freaked out by it. Like there's all these people and all this noise. Mm. And, and then eventually like they would realize, ah, oh, a lot of these people have, uh, you know, are inebriated and they're being overly loud. And, and um, so there, there's an element of my job being something that uh, they have to sort of compete with for my time and uh, attention. And they've now made peace with it. And I think they're now willing to admit that they, that they like it, that they're impressed by it, that they think there's value in it. Well, uh, this is kind of funny, but my niece, the first rock concert I took her to was an old 97s concert. Woo! Yeah, nice. it was at the uh, Overton Park Shell here, here in Memphis. Oh, yeah, and, where Elvis, uh, Elvis had his first show, yeah, right? exactly. And she had never been to a show like that, and she was so excited. She was dancing, and it was oh. it was great. It got her hooked, and she goes to live music. She's in college now, but she goes to live music all the time. And she kind of says it goes back to going to that first show and getting hooked on, on live music. So, um, nice. so that, that's what you, you, you do. You inspire people. Um, so let, let's go back to the old 97s though. When did you actually start the band? And you obviously you had your first band, but then you go on to the old 97s. What was the shift there and why have you guys stayed together and lasted for so long? <laughs> 
Um, I love it. Most people phrase it, how have you stayed together? I love the why. <laughs> why have you stayed together? <laughs> Here, I, I'm going to open a can of seltzer. ASMR. Um, so, sorry, I just had to take a drink. Oh, no. I'm right there with you. It's so hot. Um, so, the Murray and I, after that high school record that he produced, and then he sort of convinced me to drop out of college. We made a band, Sleepy Heroes, that put out a record. And then we went through a couple of other iterations of me and Murray doing rock bands. And it was in the early 90s and grunge was starting to emerge in the ashes of the hair metal world. And um, none of those felt like anything we wanted to be a part of. So everything we were doing just felt always a little bit off from the you know, the, the cultural zeitgeist. Mm -hmm. And I remember there was a moment Murray and I were um, roommates at Marquita courts in Dallas. And we watched the SNL Nirvana appearance and it was great. It was, I mean, you know, a lot of musicians were inspired by that moment. I think most of them were inspired in the opposite direction. I think a lot of bands started from that moment uh, wanting to emulate, you know, what Kurt was doing on Saturday Night Live. But we we looked at each other and realized that we were never going to feel um, natural doing this. And that, mm -hmm. that, that here was this band that, you know, they had done it about as well as it could be done. This sort of pop punk hybrid um, three piece. We were specifically we were doing like a lot of three piece type uh, rock and roll and they had nailed it and we realized we were never going to do it as well as they were going to do it and now now that it had sort of achieved the pinnacle of mainstream success it was we'd missed the boat anyway and we i think i don't want to speak for murray but i know for me it that led to a few months of real soul searching where we were trying to figure out what we were supposed to be and then it was 1993 we decided, what if we just did like a folk music band, maybe no drummer even, and we'll just play kind of country, folk, this kind of stuff that we really like, that nobody seems to care about. It it, it took the pressure off of us because in the early 90s, there was still very much the idea that you were trying desperately to ca capture the eye of an A&R guy. Um, and they were always guys. That's not true. Kim Bowie at the time at Island was a really great A&R person. Um, anyway, the the idea was that you're going to capture a record label's attention. They would sign you to a deal, and that was the end of the game. Like there was, it's so funny. Everybody stopped thinking about it once you'd signed the signed away your life's work. You, that was it. Um, but nobody was going to sign like a folk music kind of country rootsy sounding um, band like the one we were starting to visualize, and so we started. Our band, Murray, thought of, okay, we'll call it Old 97s. It'll be like kind of um, uh, Joe Strummer's first band was the 101ers. So it was kind of a nod to that. It was a nod to Johnny Cash. And then we started doing gigs. Murray inevitably wore like a train conductor's cap. And I had my, you know, Buddy Holly glasses and my Elvis pompadour. And we were just playing basically folk music. So like country elements. And it became more and more fun. And people liked it and it was weird and all of a sudden we thought well what if we put a drummer in that'll that'll still sound like kind of what we imagine and we can rock out a little bit more 
And next thing you know, we, we tried out a couple of drummers in the studio. And then we tried out one drummer for some live shows, Darren Linwood, who was this really cool rockabilly front man of a band called Fireworks. Inevitably, he wound up being a little bit flaky for us to depend on. So we went and found the guy from whom Darren was borrowing the drum kit he was using. And we hired Philip. And Philip became our drummer at the end of 1993. And here we are 29 years later. And it seemed like it happened very naturally and organically that we uh gathered this fan base and really what it took was going up to Chicago and selling out some shows up there or or at least having some really well attended shows up there and then in Dallas they heard that we were doing really well in Chicago and we started getting a bigger audience in Dallas and we did a independent record in Dallas that was well received by the local weekly and by the fan base and the next thing you knew we were able to go on tour around the United States we put out a record on a Chicago-based label, and then that started what wound up being a bidding war to South by Southwest in 1995. And we signed to Electra Records the next year, and you know, and then it's been this sort of very natural feeling progression. And it, we never looked at each other and said we're going to stay together forever, no matter mm -hmm. what. But I think the fact that we never had a hit made it pretty easy to stay together because we got to stay hungry and we got to keep making records that felt relevant and we got to sell enough tickets to where we didn't have to have proper jobs. <laughs> but but at the right. same time, we, we never were tied to a moment in time where we were now, we're like a nostalgia band, like so many of our mm -hmm. friends were. You keep putting it out, which is we're going to get to in just a, just a few minutes. Um, would you say that the sound of the old 97s um, was somewhat related to the fact that, that you're in Texas because I find Texas to be this really amazing melting pot of music, which is there's country and there's Western, there's swing and there's Tejana music and there's rock music and um, all these different genres, even some blues is sort of thrown in there. And just being there, when you sort of put all that together, there's some really interesting music that comes out of Texas, in my opinion. Would you say that that's... Um, little bit of what's embodied in the old 97s very much and it's good that you um recognize the tejano influence in there because that's definitely a part of it you know um i used to have this thing where every third song on an album needed to have a sort of a um that that's latin influence and there have been other songs it's not just the third songs on albums but throughout our career there's a lot of that um there's a lot of johnny cash you know there's there's a lot of the the rockabilly that we grew up loving i would say that there's even that sort of um western swing i really love western swing and it's funny every time we go to make a new record i i write the band i go what if this is our western swing album <laughs> and they they eventually talk me down off the ledge from making a a, a straight up western swing album although one of these days but um yeah there's there's very much a melting pot that happens in texas and and i think maybe there's other places like you know um nashville where it always winds up coming back to cnw and you know memphis where it, it winds up coming back to be more a little more bluesy and other places in the south where there, there's a, also a melting pot element, but it always leans more heavily in one specific direction. 
for whatever reason with Texas, uh, especially growing up in the 80s and 90s in Texas, it, it felt very much like nothing was off the table, like everything was okay to grab from. Well, and Texas has is known for all the dance halls as yeah. well. And so yeah. speaking of Western swing and, and obviously line dancing and everything else, but dance is really big. Yeah, the broken spoke is is my favorite uh, down in Austin, and uh, and and the it's great to look out in the audience and see people dancing to our music like two stepping or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I know that we drive people crazy because we don't consistently do that enough to where they could do it through the whole show. But uh, but it is sweet when I see people because I grew up doing ballroom dance. I took for whatever reason I really that was a thing to go to. Um, ballroom dance classes and so when I was like 11 years old I took a ballroom dance class and then when I was 12 and 13 they asked me to come back and be the assistant teacher for the for the wow younger, you must have been kids. good I loved it I just I love swing dance and ballroom dance yeah well you know it's funny speaking of dance uh, I was just at a wedding a month ago and the couple that got married um, Danielle and Mike uh, they're good friends of ours um, their song was Question. Oh, well, shout out to Danielle and Mike. Very sweet. <laughs> yeah, they wanted me to to mention that. It was it was it was actually um, it it was a great first song, and so yes. and they're they're a big fan. So I love that 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 means the world to me when I hear that because to me the idea of the importance of a song is its utility. Like, does it help somebody get through a tough time? And in the case of that song, it's been. Um, really sweet helping people in like that sort of most important moment in their life when they decide to to throw their you know throw their lot in with another human being and like it's funny what the day I wrote that song was a very important day in my own sort of um, love timeline but I didn't realize it I had I had just spent the day I was in England uh, my sister was dating a British guy and I was staying in Wimbledon at the house of the, this there of her, you know, in-laws to be, though they never stayed together, got married. Um, I was in London and I just spent the day with Erica, whom I would later wind up marrying and having kids with. And we're still, we just had our 20th wedding anniversary. Congratulations. Uh, thank you. But Erica and I had just spent the day together, but we, it was platonic. She had a boyfriend. I had been on a date with her roommate, whatever it was. It was, it didn't seem like we were going to wind up falling in love. Um, but at the end of that day, uh, a week later, we would sort of recognize that that was happening. But at the end of that day, I had no idea. I went back to that house and uh, just sitting by myself late at night, jet lagged, I wrote the song Question. And it wound up being, you know, sort of an important song in my catalog. And, you know, I've heard the stories of how it's wound up being an important song in other people's, you know, relationship stories. And it's so sweet and so beautiful. And I had no idea when I wrote it, it was such an easy song to write. I had no idea when I wrote it that not only would it mean a lot to other people, but it would sort of be a significant day in my own, you know, uh, love story. Isn't it incredible when you write songs and and you find out later they're the soundtrack of someone else's life? Yeah, and you just put them out there. Who knew? You know, it's cause it's one thing. <laughs> it's one thing to think the Tom Waits thing of go make daddy some money, uh, and that's kind of the joke. And but but you know, there's an element of truth because you, we're all trying to feed our kids with this mm -hmm. weird, you know. Uh, singing and dancing and traveling around the world doing this goofy job. But it's, it is crazy to think that I could 
you know, sit at a dining room table in Wimbledon, England, and write a song that would mean something to all these different people. And it's it's just really beautiful. That's what drew me to songwriting to begin with, because I was struggling as a teenager. I was going, I had a lot of depression. I had a lot of, um, you know, sort of self-annihilation fantasies, and I um, couldn't find meaning in life. And it occurred to me at some point, oh, the meaning that I'm finding is these little tiny scraps of meaning that I'm finding in music. And then I thought, what if I made music? That would really create meaning. And it, that's wound up being the driving force in my life for the you know 40 years since that. So when you write a song, um, are you writing it for your solo album or for the old 97s? Or do you write the song and you think, oh, this is more of a solo piece and this is more of an old 97 song? I'll, I'll just write songs and then mm -hmm. I'll listen to them after the fact and the first question is is this song good enough to ever play for anyone and um and you'd be surprised there's a lot of songs that just don't even pass that first test and then i'll wonder if the old 97s will like it but i'll i'll never know the answer to that even though i'll, I'll have my my predictions but inevitably those predictions are often wrong because the band my bandmates are very ornery and opinionated <laughs> And I'll bring them songs that I'm convinced, like, this is going to be the next big old 97 song. We're going to play this every night for the next, you know, 29 years. And they'll be like, ah, I don't really like that song. Or I'll bring them a song, uh, like on our newest, our most recent album, 12th, there's a song called I Like You Better. And it's this really droney, like heavily lyrical song. It kind of sounds like, a, like almost like a 1980s, like kind of uh, indie rock underground song and i brought it to them and they loved it and we put it on the record and it sounds great so i can never predict what they're gonna like but i give them for the most part first crack at songs sometimes i'll write a song when i'm in the middle of making a solo record and it's just i'm caught up in the fugue state of making an album and that song will just get put on the album and the old 97s won't get a crack at it sometimes i feel a little bit guilty about that but you know it's art what can i say you're just we're all just doing our best but I try, I try to give them first crack because, you know, dance with the one that brung you. Absolutely. And it is art, as you say. Um, so let's talk about The Misfit because this is your new solo album. Um, it's your ninth solo album, right? Um, Thereabouts. That, that sounds right. I think, yeah, because it was because <laughs> it was a, a, an even 20. There were uh, 12 97s albums and eight solo albums. So this will be nine, 21. Yeah. Wow, it's a lot of albums. Wow. Did you write these songs um, during COVID or just more recently? I mean, I think we're kind of a little bit out of COVID. That's what I'm saying anyway. <laughs> Knock wood. I, this record was different from any record I'd ever made before in that I had, during COVID, I'd spent so much of my time and energy doing online performances. I was doing four a week wow. you know, for a, a year and a half during the pandemic or almost two years. Um I wasn't writing a lot of songs, which for me was very scary and weird. I mm. was writing pieces of songs. I was writing large chunks of songs. Um, I was coming up with lots of ideas. So when I was thinking about making the solo record, I was not crazy about where I was at with my stack of songs. Like for me, I like to have, I like to have about 30 songs. And then I go into the studio and we'll mess around with them. And the 12 best songs will wind up making the record or whatever it is you know 11 13 
so in the case of this record, I really wanted to work again with Sam Cohen, my producer from The Messenger, my uh, solo record before The Misfit. And Sam and I worked really well together. His idea was, what if it was just me and Sam in the room? And instead of bringing in musicians and having finished songs, what if we took uh, song starters, pieces of songs, uh, songs that maybe were far along but needed a lot of work? What if we collaborated in real time on songs and recorded them as we were working? And I'd never done this before. And it was exhilarating because I would come in with, in, in, the, case of, in the case of a song like Beautiful Life, I had most of that song, but we changed it fundamentally in the studio. We took it from being a straight song to being a waltz. We took it from um, being a really upbeat pop song to being this really like cinematic sounding kind of slower thing. But in, in most of the songs on this record, I just had a piece and we would sitting there in the morning, we would, I'd play it for him. We would talk about it. He would throw an idea at me that might be a chorus and we would see how they sounded together. And then between the two of us, we would find our way to a structure and a melody. And then he would start building the music, uh, just him, you know, typically like a drum, sort of like an 808 drum machine, or he would build drums, live drums in the room. And then he would start laying down a padding of keyboards or a piano or a guitar. And I would go sit uh, on the porch on his porch because he lives just over the mountain from me. And he's in Ackerd and I'm in Gardiner, New York. So I would drive over the mountain to his house 25 minutes away. And so I would sit out on his porch and I would write the lyrics and he would get a bed of music going and I'd come in and I'd sing for him what I had. And he would point out any problems he saw with it. Um, although typically when I'm singing the lyrics to someone for the first time as i'm singing them i'm feeling like oh god this part isn't working or this part is so good we need to sing this part twice you know that kind of thing by the afternoon by the late afternoon evening we would have the rough mix of a finished song and the magic that 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 was day after day in making this record was unlike anything I'd ever done before. Like there was nothing. And then that by the evening, there was not just a song, but like a recording of a song that sounded like as good as or better than anything I'd ever been a part of. And it was, yeah, it was mind blowing. I'd never worked like that. And a, a big part of that is um, the magic that is Sam Cohen, someone who is a producer who can see the architecture of music and transition from being like the composer of it to being someone who's recording it and finding the best sounds for it, like all on the fly in real time. Uh, watching him do that, I the closest analog in my career was making The Instigator with John Bryan, who is an incredible producer and musician and can play every instrument like Sam, where you're seeing someone who's working on a whole other level, where it really is architecture. In their mind, they're building this edifice that is the song. And they're able to hold it all together in their mind in a way that barely even makes sense to me. Like it doesn't register how someone could do that. So how did that, does that differ then from when you go to record an album with the old 97s? And I know there's so many more people involved, so that's one thing, but creatively, is it really different? Well, with the old 97s, typically I'm walking in with a song 
And it's like, uh, I've spent a lot of time working it out. First chorus, first chorus, maybe a bridge, although I'm doing fewer bridges these days, but regardless, uh, maybe another verse chorus, maybe an outro. Like I have an idea of, of the, uh, I have the architecture of the song and, and I, and I've set up like, this is the room where the lead guitar is going to live. And I'll let him furnish that room. This is the room where the drum, this is the foundation that the drums are going to build. And I, there's a space there for Philip to build the foundation, you know? And so everybody has their area that they furnish. And, um, but typically it's more of a finished uh, structure. And then the band comes in and builds out parts of it. Um, but there's, and there, there, there are moments where they'll, you know, they'll question something or we'll work on the arrangement on the fly. But typically it's there's way less wiggle room with, you know, with regards to the, the song itself. Sure. And, but what they contribute is songwriting. And that's why we share songwriting credit. And that's why we share publishing, which, by the way, is in answer to your question, the unasked question of how does how does a band stay together for 29 years? A big part of it is that everybody gets a say. And everybody shares in, everybody reaps the bounty. You know, everybody shares in the publishing and we share in obviously all the touring, whatever money comes in, we all share it out as brothers and not exactly equals on the publishing, but pretty much pretty close to equal shares. That makes sense to me that, that, and I've, I've heard from a number of bands that have been together for a long time that their the success is in recognizing everyone's individual talents and, and looking at it as a collective whole, we're all in this together, as opposed to it's about one person or another yeah. in the band. You know that can that can obviously <laughs> rub people the wrong way if if, uh, if someone is taking all of the credit for everything. I guess. And it's not just the collective talents; it's sort of the the idea that when we hired Philip to be our drummer, he had a really good job. He had a degree. He had a good job. He could have stayed in his job and had like job security and all the benefits that come with a good job. He could have been home every day of his kids' lives, but he didn't. He chose to be in our band and he chose to give up the security and and to be away from home. He missed birthdays, you know, all that kind of stuff. And so, yeah, maybe I bring in a song that's pretty much a completed song, but it doesn't make sense to say that 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 Philip's contributions are significantly less than mine, you know, because he's just as much a part of the success of this band. Drummers, I only bring him up because drummers, more than any other band member, typically are going to get screwed in the, the accounting. <laughs> so on the album, Misfit, the Misfit, you have um, some... Um, some guest vocalists as well, All right? Yeah, and it's kind of funny too because I wasn't there. I was on tour the day that they came in to cut their parts, and um, I have never met them. So they contributed this incredible vocals to my album, and I am yet to be in the same room as these two brilliant women, Cassandra and Nora. And I don't know them i think i know cassandra's music really well cassandra jenkins and she makes great records she's i'm a big fan of her music i hope to someday meet both of them but i am i don't know they're strangers to me in in a way that almost contributes to just the magic of the whole thing uh you know the fact that Sam you go to can, hear it for the first time yourself yeah. and you're like wow <laughs> like oh my god this who is are blowing these my mind yeah exactly <laughs> 
So what's behind the misfit? What, what does that sort of mean to you? Um, well, I've got a, I've got a, um, a title template over the years uh, that I didn't use on my high school album mythologies, but every other album has been the something, uh, the instigator, the believer, the dreamer, the messenger. I did miss, I missed the mark when I made my self-titled album in I think 2010 or whatever that was, uh, that was just called Rhett Miller. I would give anything to go back in time and call it the Rhett Miller because then it would fit in with the dreamer. The um, So I wanted a name that fit with that. I, I, I kind of had the idea that I didn't necessarily want it to end in ER because I'm trying to shed some of my obsessive tendencies and it's okay to have things not always be perfectly conforming to a pattern. So it did, uh, I wanted it to be the, and I wanted it to maybe be not ending in ER or OR. And there was a lyric on the record where um, uh, in one of the songs it says, wind up on an island feeling like a misfit. And I just really liked that word, the misfit. And I like the way it fit with uh, my last name, Rhett Miller, the misfit. It felt, it felt like an album title. And then um, it felt like it fit thematically because this album is a misfit in my catalog in that there are a lot of synthesizers on this album. Uh, it's an album that I, I only collaborated with one person and he and I made all of the music and lyrics and we did it all in this way that I've it, in so many ways, this album is an outlier uh, from the other albums that I've made solo and old 97s. This album is very different from all of those. And I know that the fans will be challenged by this album. And I thought maybe by calling it the misfit, it was a bit of a, like, um, like non-disclosure, like, or full disclosure, you know, this album is going to be a misfit. This album is going to be a little weird. You may, uh, you may hit track number, whatever 1234 uh, is, or, or, um, fascination there's a couple of songs where i know when fans get to those songs they're going to be like what is this <laughs> so I, I wanted to warn them a little bit well so the album art it, i i don't always bring up album art but this looked like a painting to me and i just wanted to know the story behind it so it is very much a painting um this is another way in which wheels off my podcast has been the gift that keeps on giving i interviewed um a painter named Ash, uh, an artist, she, um, not just a painter, named Ashley Longshore, who is uh, this guy. I don't know if she would approve of this reduction, but she's like the Andy Warhol of our generation. She's this incredible pop artist. And she um, she's, you know, very famous and renowned and successful. And her paintings sell for tens, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, she's a big, big deal, right? So after I'd interviewed her and we hit it off really well and I really liked her spirit, like she's just got this giant spirit, this indomitable um, enthusiasm that I just found so brilliant and inspiring. And I reached out to her and I said, look, I know this is a long shot, but do you think, would you ever consider doing an album cover or specifically my album cover? And I sent her the album 
and she connected with it and she loved it and she was willing to create an album cover for the pittance of a of a uh, budget that the record label that any re no record labels have money anymore that's the nature of our business now but ato is good i'm not you know i'm not talking smack about my label they they do spend money i guess and all that i get it that we're all working under certain constraints they were able to um, work with Ashley's people and make it happen. And Ashley Longshore created an album cover, having listened to the album and lived with it. And, and she painted it while listening to the album. And she, I, I won't try and um, recapitulate her description of what went into the images in her painting, but she had thoughts behind each of the images in the painting. Um, and it was so sweet and so thoughtful and the painting itself is so beautiful and vibrant. And I've always had pictures of me on the cover of my albums. Um, although what's funny now that I think about it, the, the first album that I made in high school, Mythologies, was also a painting of me. And so it's funny now to come full circle 30 years later, 30 plus years later, um, and have this album cover be once again a painting of me. And for me, the idea that people can buy a copy of the vinyl of, of the LP of this album and frame it and hang it on their wall and they own then for 25 bucks or whatever vinyl costs, they own a piece of Ashley Longshore art. To me, that is so cool and so egalitarian and so in, it's such like a cool byproduct of her having done the album cover. I just, I'm, I'm really, I'm really proud of that and honored and blown away that she did it. I thought it was a beautiful painting. Um, I, did, did she give you the actual painting? Is it in your house somewhere? <laughs> I, I wish. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I Believe me, I thought about asking her what she was going to do with it, but I knew that would come across as sounding like passive aggressive. Like, what are you going to do? Hint, hint. Um, my guess is that she has it in her collection. And I don't know what she'll do with it. Maybe she'll sell it to a super fan of mine uh, for hundreds of thousands of dollars. Knowing Ashley, she'll probably uh, sell it and give the money to charity for some kick-ass cause because she's the kind of artist that puts her money where her mouth is. And who knows? Uh, I'll find out. Yeah, ab absolutely. Well, it's just a, it's a great album. It's a great collection of 11 songs and... I um, I had so much fun listening to it, and um, but before I go, I did want to ask you how you got the name Rhett. Ah, uh, so my dad is Stuart Ransom Miller. I am Stuart Ransom Miller the second, though technically because he's my dad, I should be junior. The second is only usually typically used in the case of a, a generation being skipped in in naming, but. Thank God. They, I'm nothing against juniors. There's a lot of juniors out there that are very cool people. Um, but I'm Stuart Ransom Miller II. And my mom was not crazy about that name. So she agreed to it when I was, you know, I just I just arrived. They were deciding on the name. Um, she agreed to that name if I could be called by a nickname. And she really loved the movie Gone with the Wind. So from birth, I've been called Rhett. And on my birth certificate, it's Stuart Ransom Miller. It's made for a lot of confusion. 
um, before people were, were really good about making sure your name was right on a on airline booking, <laughs> for instance, I had to, there were times when I would have to show up at the airport with a copy of my album to prove that I, that I am Rhett Miller and I match my Stuart Ransom Miller passport or whatever. It, um, that no longer works, by the way. You can't show them a copy of your CD and have that work as actual no. <laughs> I- identification. <laughs> but so, yeah, I've been called Rhett since birth. Well, I'm going to pick up a copy of the vinyl because I'm a huge fan of the fact that vinyl has come back. Yeah. I started my record collection with vinyl. Then there were tapes and there were CDs. Now I'm back to vinyl again. So, That's so funny. Uh, I love it, it too. Is- my kids love it. My kids are into it. I know it is. It is very funny. Of course, we have Memphis Record Pressing here, one of the bigger record pressing uh, companies in, in the country. And so, every every time we turn around, they're they're growing astronomically because vinyl is back. So it's very exciting on that end. And you know what I'm realizing? The first vinyl record I ever made was in Memphis when I came through and I went to the Graceland gift shop. And there's a li- there was a booth where you could record along with a, tra- a backing track. And, and have it pressed on vinyl. And I took it with me on my way up to Sarah, Lawrence, Sarah Lawrence College. <laughs> and it was a, um, my school's alma mater was to the tune of Love Me Tender, which is an old folk tune. He stole it, you mm-hmm. know, from folk music. Right. And so I I recorded myself singing over the backing track of Love Me Tender, St. Mark's School, we sing thy praise, alma mater true. And I recorded that. I gave it to my my favorite high school teacher, um, so I don't even have a copy anymore, but yeah, my first vinyl was right there in Memphis. Well, hopefully she still has the copy and Rhett, thanks for coming and joining us. It was great to talk about the misfit and old 97s and we wish you the best. Um, hope to see you in down in Memphis sometime. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me on and letting me rattle on and on. Like I do. I really appreciate it. Take care. All right, folks, that's a wrap for this conversation covering the creative process of renowned musician and singer-songwriter Rhett Miller. Released almost exactly 20 years after The Instigator, his solo major-label debut, The Misfits, is available now via ATO Records. This new LP balances neatly between pop music and profoundly personal poetry. Rhett Miller is a bright and inspiring guy, and it was great to catch up with him today. Check out his catalog of solo work, as well as his work with Old 97s, and be sure to recommend what you like to your friends. From all of us at Diddy TV, thanks again for tuning in today. And we hope to see you again real soon, right here on Insights. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points.
FantasyPoints.com. Code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 